The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 605 for Sunday, May 15th, 2016. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show that's like car talk for Apple geeks. You send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We share your questions. We share your tips. We answer your cool stuff found. No, that's not true. We share those. Whatever. <clears throat> it all works. That's what we're trying to say. The goal, when it does work, and it always works, is for each one of us, including me and John and you, to learn at least three new things each and every time we get together. And, of course, on top of that, perhaps ahead of that, but alongside that, equal to that, the goal is to have some fun. Sponsors for this episode include... FreshBooks, freshbooks.com slash MGG, where you can go get 30 days for free. We'll talk more about that later. A new sponsor, Gemini 2 from MacPaw at MacPaw.com slash MGG. You get 30% off of Gemini 2, and I can't wait to tell you more about that. Uh, Otherworld Computing at MacSales.com. Great folks there with great stuff. And of course, Barebones at Barebones, Barebones Software at Barebones.com. We'll tell you all about all of those between now and when the show ends. For now... Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Ron. How goes it, my friend? Good. I think I'll, think I'll make it without hacking up a lung here. Yeah, the allergies uh, here in New England, this, is, this was the week, right? Because it, it, uh, it's been kind of cold, and then it was rainy and, and sort of muggy, and, and then suddenly the sun came out. And of course, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take a, uh, a biologist to know that uh, that that's how that's how plants grow. <laughs> so uh, so yeah, we've experienced that. And then today it's back to being kind of I don't know, you know, New Englandy. It's like gray and and like sixty or something outside, but humid. So it's uh, yeah, it's allergy fun time this time of year for us. So a little bit of caffeine, I think, will get us going this morning, John. So I'm I've given I've given us permission. I know one of the hosts on the show here doesn't. Uh, typically do caffeine but i've given us both permission to do that this morning john so that's good let's talk about beans um because Poppy beans yeah beans is the one that wrote in and said uh regarding the comment about encrypting uh an external disk you can probably check the in- encryption status using diskutil space cs space list look for the logical volume group that contains the external volume and follow the chain until you see the conversion status, which should be converting. This is in response to what you were talking about at the beginning of last week's show, John, where your, uh, your CPU was pegged and yet the, uh, you know, I O was pegged. No, CPU was fine. Right. That's right. I O was pegged. Sorry about that. Yes, that's right. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's where that, that's where that goes. That's where you can see that disk util space CS space list. So thanks man. That's, uh, Handy stuff to share. Uh, do you have? Did your did your drive finish? Did the, uh, the 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 mysterious stuff stop being mysterious? Oh yeah, it's it's all done. Yeah, it's pretty much a one time thing with an external drive. Right, right. Is that there's a lot of activity and then it does it does it on the fly. Right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, in and out. Yep. But um, it was funny because someone else wrote in and said that it, you know it's weird because that's the only place that it'll show up. That and either 
you know, like I said, I stat menus or activity monitor, but, but it won't show up in any of the statistics as far as like, you know, I thought it maybe would show up as like, uh, bytes written or read as far as like associated with the kernel process or something, but it oddly enough doesn't. Sure. Very strange. But huh. yeah, so that's, um, yeah, that's great tip. Yeah. Thank you, Beans. Sure. All right. Dan, uh, had a tip to share with us as well. Dan says, my wife and I share an iCloud account, and we have done so for many years before the advent of family sharing. We did so originally so that we could share contacts and calendars, and now also because we can share iCloud data backup storage. Uh, well, family sharing would allow us to share calendars and contacts. It does not allow for shared backup plans. I, I agree with you. It would be great if Apple did that, but they don't. You have to buy separate backup plans for each user. Um, recently, he says... My wife's phone calls started appearing on my iPhone. I would get a notification that my wife's mother had called me when I knew that she hadn't. And when I checked my recent calls, I would see calls that my wife made, received, or missed. My wife, however, would not see my calls. When I researched this, I saw others had the same problem. I tried a lot of the suggestions that were proposed, such as turning off handoff or continuity, logging out of FaceTime, making sure FaceTime was associated with the right phone number, etc. None of these seemed to work. It says I even called AT&T and they didn't have any help. Finally, someone on a forum suggested turning off iCloud Drive on my wife's iPhone. Turns out she had recently enabled it, but did not really use it. That worked. Says, I don't know why, but it appears that Apple uses iCloud Drive to sync phone logs, even when the phone has a different phone number associated with it. So yeah, this is another one of those sort of weird side effects of using the same iCloud account for different people. I, you know, Apple's intention, and I, I support this solely because it's Apple's intention and otherwise weird things like this happen, but their intention is one iCloud account per person, multiple devices, fine, but each one of those devices for one person. Uh, and yeah, there are a couple of things where that uh, doesn't, it doesn't help. Like, you know, and it specifically shared storage would be a beautiful thing. If everybody could back up to the same shared pool, like if I could buy, you know, whatever, uh, you know, 50 gigs for the family instead of 50 gigs per person, uh, that would be much better because that would be enough, you know, to do that. So it would be nice. The other thing, and I, I, I've been really, you know, this is, I've been scratching my head about this, John. So thank you for bringing it up, Dan, is this concept, you, you know, Apple allows us to, with family sharing, we can share purchases of apps and, and other content, right? But specifically with apps. So if I buy an app with my account, my kids can download that app for free because I've bought it and, and, and vice versa, right? If they buy an app with one of their accounts because we're in a family sharing account, I can download it for free. That's great. And that works out really well if there's a, an app that has, say, a light version that's free and then a paid version that's pro, only one of us has to buy it. But where it gets weird is... Even though we're on a family sharing account, we can't share in-app purchases, right? So if an app, instead of having a light version and a, a pro version, has just the one app, and then you can pay to unlock other features, essentially the pro version of the app, then my family can't share that. And it, it seems extremely arbitrary. Um, in fact, actually, it doesn't seem arbitrary at all. It's better for a developer to develop one app that has free and paid uh, in many ways because you will chart better if everybody is downloading one of your apps as opposed to if people are downloading 
two different flavors uh, of your app. You'll actually chart better because of that. So it's not arbitrary for the for the developer, but it seems very arbitrary on Apple's part that they let families have one and not the other. And then they let developers sort of do whichever they like. I understand for like a game, if you've got some consumables, like, you know, you buy, you just bought, uh, you know, a hundred extra coins or lives in whatever game you want to buy. That makes sense that that wouldn't be shareable, but something like unlocking pro features that's very similar to just buying another app. That part should be shareable. And uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a weird thing. I don't, I, it, it, it feels like it's not fully fleshed out, but, uh, but it's what we deal with. So, so there you go. That's my thoughts on it. Thanks for bringing up the topic, Dan. Any thoughts on, from you, John? I, you know, it's, it's odd because, well, just a tip here. So, I'm surprised that turning off handoff didn't prevent this. Now, you may be asking yourself, how do I do this? And actually, it took me a moment to find where this is. And in my humble opinion, it's in a weird spot. So at least on the Mac, it's in general. And then you'll see a little checkbox, allow handoff between this Mac and your iCloud devices. Mm. But he claims it didn't no, work. It no, it's should. iCloud Drive that's sharing this data. That's that's the part that's like, whoa. And, and that's the thing is, you know, iCloud Drive does more than just store your apps. A lot of, uh, especially a lot of Apple apps, store data, like preference data there uh, in, in, a, in a way that you as the user don't see. And so you can wind up getting very strange things happening, even with third-party apps. Uh, you know, you're, with your preferences kind of floating back and forth, if you use iCloud Drive, so you got to be you got to be careful of of uh, of that if you're sharing a single account amongst multiple people. Um, you know what, John? I want to. Uh, I, I'm actually really excited about this. So can can we talk about our first uh, group of sponsors here today? Uh, I'm excited too. Yes. All right. Our first sponsor today is a new sponsor, at least a. Sponsor returning with a new product, and that is Gemini 2 from MacPaw. Gemini, and of course now Gemini 2, uh, is the latest version of MacPaw's duplicate finder app. So that's what Gemini does. It scans your whole Mac or parts of your Mac. You, you can pick. Uh, and then it shows you how much space you'd save with duplicates. And then you can drill down into the detail and you can either just you know, remove everything that it found, or you can say, no, wait, that one, I like to have those, that same file in these three directories because maybe I'm working on a project with somebody and they all need access to it. Or you could say, delete it. I don't want it, but it finds it. And it's really smart about the way it finds it. I, I honestly was blown away when I first started uh, testing this thing. Uh, it, first of all, it is super fast. I mean, it just blazes through. I, it blew me away how quickly it just scanned through my documents folder. I mean, it was just done. So, uh, and it will find files that are similar, like songs and pictures that are close, but not the same. Again, it'll find them. You decide whether it deletes them. And yes, when I say songs and pictures, it's not just looking at documents. It can scan your iTunes. It can scan your photos library. It will highlight the differences between the files. So it'll show you what it feels is the, the difference. It also learns from you. It 
notices how you select files for removal and starts doing things just like you. And of course, if you trash something and decide, no, it's not for me, it lets you put it back. Of course. So Gemini 2 is available right now for $19.99, but you can go to macpaw.com slash MGG to get 30% off. That's macpaw.com slash MGG, 30% off of the already low price of $19.99. Thanks to MacPaw for sponsoring this episode. Deleting files helps speed up your Mac, but that's not the only way. And our second sponsor, Other World Computing at MacSales.com helps you with a lot of other ways to speed up your Mac. You want to add RAM to your Mac? Start at MacSales.com. You want to add an SSD to your Mac? Because that... I mean, we've been saying it for years, but that is the absolute best money I've ever spent on an upgrade in my life. And I spent that money starting, you know, what, four years ago. It's a lot less money now to get that same bang for your buck. So uh, so check out all their great um, SSDs that you can get them internal or external. And speaking of external OWC, man, Thunderbolt Central over there. They've got all kinds of great things for Thunderbolt. So, you know, we've talked about their Thunderbolt dock, their Thunderbolt 2 dock. So got a, uh, it's got two Thunderbolt cables for pass-through, five USB 3 ports, one FireWire 800 port, one gigabit Ethernet port, HDMI, audio input, and audio output. I have one of these things plugged into my iMac in the office, and it, it's it's a it's an integral part of my setup. All those extra USB three ports are killer, and it's nice to have FireWire. So uh, you got to check all this stuff out. Go to maxsales.com and just start looking around. If you don't already have a Thunderbolt dock, I really I highly recommend theirs, and I highly recommend getting one in general. And in that group, I highly recommend theirs. It works very well for me. MaxSales.com, our thanks to Otherworld Computing for sponsoring this episode. Hi, John, David, Pilot Pete. This is Pete from Wisconsin, uh, here with a tip of sorts and a confession. Um, I guess I'll start with the confession first. I got caught. Um, yeah, I fixed it, but, but I got caught. Anyway, um, a couple of months ago I had asked you guys what, uh, what your recommendations were for a, um, for a new wireless router. One of the recommendations you had had uh, posited was a uh, uh, the Synology RT1900AC, which I'm glad you guys informed me of, of that router's existence, because I did not know it existed before I ended up getting it, and it has been a blast. I haven't quite uh, dove into the QoS part of it yet, I will do that probably as soon as I get home from the trip I'm on, but um, yeah, because I'm going to foresee a need for that. But anyway, I've got a, a sizable hard drive with a couple of partitions that I have just attached to the router itself. Um, USB 3 port on that has been an absolute godsend. Uh, use that just kind of as a quick and dirty NAS. Um, don't need anything as as feature-rich as a disk station net, uh, yet, but um, I can see myself moving up in the future. But anyway, ran into an interesting issue with this whole setup where I was transferring media library over from a couple of the computers that I have onto this hard drive. And suddenly, I started getting an error message anytime I anytime I tried to upload or download anything from this drive. Uh, error message forty one. Um, the, the weird thing was is is even though I could browse, or even though I couldn't um, 
upload or download anything, I could browse the drive just fine, see all the files on it, go through all the directories, no issues there, just couldn't move anything. Couldn't create folders, couldn't delete folders, couldn't move files around on the drive itself, nothing. Everything popped up with this Air 41. So I uh, decided to turn to the internet, Google, to try to make the bad words go away, and there's not a lot of uh, intermediate-level geek information out there. All of it seems to be the level of, uh, as Douglas Adams would put, advanced god, or possibly above. Um, but everything I was seeing uh, put a feeling in my gut that it might have been a permissions issue. It was. Uh, I popped the drive out, fixed the permissions, took care of the problem right away. I did, however, and this is kind of the second part of the, the tip, I did learn something rather interesting about disk uh, disc utility. Uh, you guys probably already knew this. Uh, I don't. And hopefully this will help somebody else out there. If you select the drive itself, not any of the partitions on the drive in Disk Utility, and run first aid, it will not scan permissions or anything. It'll just pretty much do a smart status check, and that's it. To actually fix permissions, you have to select each partition. I've got three of them on this drive, so I had to select each partition in, in turn and, and run the, uh, the first aid utility. It didn't take very long, it only took about 15 minutes, but uh, learned a couple of new things that day. Hope this helps Hope this helps somebody out, and uh, guys, thanks for doing the show. Yeah, thanks Pete, thanks for the comment, that's uh, very, very helpful. Very, it, And you're right, it, it's easy in disk utility to get lost there uh, between the being on the, the disk versus the, the partition, and uh, you can see it, but the, the uh, repair options don't look remarkably different. They are slightly different, but uh, but they don't look remarkably different. So you might think that you've repaired something one way when in fact you haven't. So thanks, man. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Any thoughts on that, John? Well, I think we're going to talk about that uh, shortly about some things that are yeah, that's better yeah. than disutility, which is pretty much anything. <laughs> yeah, why don't we jump to that? We can come back to these tips here. Why don't we jump down to Mark? Because uh, that's a that's a good place to go. All right, let's jump to Mark. So, let's see. Mark started off by saying that he has a 2010 iMac 10.11.4 with one terabyte with a one terabyte 7200 RPM spinning drive. Uh, he's saying that the computer is taking forever to boot up. He can hear lots of hard drive access. Also, every time he does anything, he can hear slow hard drive access. So he thinks that the hard drive has seen better days. He's tried the usual repair things, repairing permissions, speed tools, defrag, tech tool, and even did a nuke and pave. Can you recommend some software that can tell me if my hard drive is the issue with all this slowness? Something that would show it may be doing too many searches for files or something. If I have to replace the hard drive, would it be better with just a new iMac at this time than with a six-year-old computer? I thought of an SSD, but like an old car, is it just chasing rust? <laughs> Um, and that actually got me to recommend some programs here, Dave. Yeah. So I'm going to go through some and, and I've actually communicated with you some of, so I actually, the, the drive that I was uh, obsessing about in the last, uh, in the last episode, uh, is actually going into a failure mode. Okay. How do I know this? I'm going to tell you how I know this sure. because I have all these wonderful programs and I'm going to go kind of in, in order of functionality and cost and okay. tell you some things that'll help you because in general, the Mac isn't very proactive about telling you when a drive fails. 
you know, like Mark said, you may be with a rota- at least with a rotational drive, you may hear bad things happening. With an SSD, you don't. Right. You know, they they just roll over. So you need a utility that can you know kind of talk to the drive or, or do some some things proactively on on your behalf to tell you if something bad happens. And there are a few of them. So one that I've been using for a really long time uh, is called Smart Reporter. Smart uh, being system monitoring and reporting technology or something like that. But basically, it is two things. One, it uh, Smart is one kind of a thumbs up, thumbs down status of the drive. And if you go in disutility or in system info, you will see the smart status of the drives. The thing is, as uh, smart is not very smart on that level. And that I've never seen it predict a drive failing before it failed. However, there are lower level parameters, uh, smart parameters that the drive will store. And those are a better way of finding out. So, one ut- another way is that you can have utilities actually f- telling you if IO errors have occurred. And this is typically reported uh, in a log file somewhere. Um, but you have to look for that. Unless you're running something. So the first one, Dave, is Smart Reporter. Okay. Uh, and I actually had it come with this external drive. It actually came up and told me, whoa, whoa, I found an uh, IO error. And I sent you the report and was like, wow, that, that's pretty neat. So it can proactively tell you if a drive is encountering I.O. errors. If a drive is reporting I.O. errors, it's probably on its way out. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so Smart Reporter is pretty cool. You can get it at the App Store. You know, we'll link to all of these. And, and it's six bucks. Sure. Five ninety nine. So pretty good for, for what it does. Um, but there are some others. Uh, one that I have not used, but we, we have had some... Uh, some listeners uh, send in reports from it, and this one's better. Um, it's called Smart Utility, and it will actually look at the various smart parameters, and when it sees some going in the wrong direction, it'll kind of give you a heads up. So I haven't personally used this one, okay. um, but again, we have had users uh, tell us about it and send us screenshots from it. Uh, so it looks pretty good, and I think you can try it out. That's 25 bucks. Okay. Um, and finally, and this one also um, helped me out, Dave. Well, two more here. So, so another one is Drive Pulse. Now, this is part of ProSoft's Drive Genius. Yep. Um, that package retails for $99, but it also... So, so this drive that I have failing, so both Smart Reporter, uh, like I told you, it reported an I.O. error, but... Drive Pulse will occasionally do in the background for you a physical, it'll basically scan the entire drive sure. looking for problems. And it also told me that this external drive was failing. It's like, whoa, it failed the uh, the physical scan of the drive. You, you probably want to replace it soon. Um, so that's a third one. And then the fourth one, Dave, um, and we like these guys because we mentioned in the past. So normally you cannot get smart status. OS ten does not support does not support smart status on an external drive, like a USB drive. Um, but these guys at Binary Fruit <clears throat> uh, actually created or, or signed a driver that will allow this. Um, but they also make a utility which they have uh, provided us with. Uh, uh, to check out and Dave, uh, I don't know if you've checked out Drive DX. Um, it's really cool, man. I, I mean, it it yeah, I've checked it out. 
it tells you so much about your drive and it's in a nice little interface. I, I've been, I've been blown away by drive DX to be quite honest with you. And uh, what they do. The, so the thing that I like is that they explain in excruciating detail what each of the smart parameters mean to yes. help you understand what's going on here. So that's one plus about it. Um, and it also, the drive that, that I have that's failing on me, it actually came and said, oh, you know, these two smart parameters uh, are at a level that tells me that your drive is about to fail. And it actually gives the health of that drive right now yeah. uh, at like 80%. So to give you a relative measure. So it's like, you know, this parameter doesn't necessarily mean the drive is failing, but maybe it is. Right. Yeah. So just want you to know about it. Um, that's a good one, too. That one is... Uh, Priced at nineteen ninety nine, and I think they also have a trial. They do, yeah, yeah. So, I'm I'm impressed with with what they've done there. It's um, it, you know, it takes a lot, right, to step into this market. It's I mean, it's not crowded, but there's most of the needs are are served, right? And and they've found a, a kind of an avenue that uh, that that opens up more, which is great. Um, it's great, yeah. Okay, uh, let's and yeah, we mentioned that as cool stuff found recently too. But it's always nice to find like you know, hey, this is cool, and then also, hey, this actually helped, <laughs> right? So it's good stuff. Okay, going back, uh, I guess we can circle back to tips here. We've got a couple more. Jed wrote in. He said, uh, "I'll file this under quick tips." He says, "iTunes has been auto opening." on me for years, if not a decade. And it's happening when he plugs in external speakers. And he says, so the thing that does this is the iTunes helper app. He says, go to system preferences, users and groups, login items and remove the iTunes helper from the list. He says, then log out and log back in, try connecting your speakers. It shouldn't relaunch iTunes. He says, here's the thing. Uh, the iTunes helper app is part of iTunes. Dis to disable it, you have to view the contents of the iTunes app by option clicking or right clicking and choosing show package, co package contents. He finds, uh, and he found a couple, like I said, he found a couple different ways. If you rename the iTunes helper app to iTunes helper disable.app, then that also will prevent it from launching. Um, but, uh, but the problem is every time iTunes updates, you're going to have to redo either one of these things. Cause it's going to go put it back in login items. It's going to go put back the right file name because it's going to replace all of iTunes. But, um, but he said it's been working for him and it keeps it from, uh, from auto opening iTunes, which is a good thing. Gray, uh, has, Another interesting thing. He says, I noticed something that you may have mentioned on the show, but I don't remember. When my iPhone and my keyless entry key fob for my Audi are in the same pocket, the phone blocks or interferes with the signal from the key to the car. This prevents the opening and closing of the trunk. I was reaching for the owner's manual when the potential source of the problem came to mind. He says, so now I just need to make sure I keep them in separate pockets. So phones and fobs don't belong, or at least iPhones and fobs don't belong in the same pocket. And I wonder if that has, I mean, it, there, there's obviously a bunch of radios in the phone. I wonder if it's an NFC thing, if this is new to phones that have NFC in them. Um, John, do you know? I mean, I think the key fobs use, uh, they, I mean, they have a battery in them. So it's, it's some sort of active RF, but I don't know. 
I don't know what the, what the frequency is for that. I think it's relatively low frequency from what I remember. So anyway, that's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it obviously it, it's sending a signal out when you press any one of the buttons, but it's also doing this, this near field kind of thing. My key fobs, I'm pretty impressed with them. Um, if I have them obviously in the car, the car will start. But a lot of times I put my key fob in the handle of my door. And as long as the door is closed, the car doesn't complain. But if the door is still open and I try to start the car, it says the key's not in the car. I mean, it's, it's, it's that sensitive to it, um, which is impressive that they've you know been able to narrow it down that much. But uh, I don't know. So if you're having problems with your key fob, try taking your phone and putting it a little further away and see if that helps. You know, speaking of near field stuff, I meant to mention this last show. We, when we were in uh, Burlington, Vermont last weekend, we stayed at the Hilton there and uh, Lisa drove. And while we were on our way there, uh, I got a note from Hilton saying, hey, your room's ready to be, uh, you know, you're ready for check-in. Open the app and you can check in right in the app. So I'm like, okay, cool. And I go and they actually let me pick which room I wanted. They showed me a map of the hotel. They had auto selected one for me and they let me change it if I wanted, but the one they auto selected was fine. So I left it at that. And then it says, Hey, do you want to use digital key? And I thought, sure. It's a great, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll push the key to your, your iPhone and you don't even have to go to the front desk. Just go right to the room. I was like, well, okay. So it gave me the room number. Obviously, you know, I had picked it. And uh, when the digital key came through, which was before we arrived at the hotel, uh, we just went to the room and I opened the app and it said, get close to the room that you're going to open. And once I was within, I don't know, five or 10 feet of the room, the, uh, the UI changed and it said, press to unlock. So I pressed it. And about, I don't know, four or five seconds later, the door unlocked. And that's what I used all weekend. I, I, I actually got keys because other members of my family were in the same room and uh, you can't share the digital key to other phones but uh but for me i just used used the phone the whole time it was pretty cool wow yeah yeah the information i have here so nfc is 13.56 megahertz and from what i can tell the keyless systems are in the hundreds of megahertz that's what but it I could thought. be that yeah. it, but it could be that they're close enough or you know uh, if something is a multiple a lot of times with radio frequency if something is a multiple of uh, yeah another device that that could cause interference kind of like us yeah the whole usb3 fiasco right right well that's actually the same frequency right that's the issue with that but but yeah i mean having radios near each other is there's always kind of spillover so yeah well i think the problem the 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 usb3 fiasco is because so usb3 is five gigahertz and the thing is that fights with things that are at a multiple of that, which is 2.4 gigahertz. Wow. Or it's close enough. I think that was the reason that you may see Wi-Fi and USB 3 kind of yeah, that makes sense. Fight with each other is because harmonics. So I'm, as, so I'm as thinking, Sharon in yeah, the room points out. Yeah, yeah. So so I think you may get a similar thing with these, uh, but because they're kind of close to each other or multiple of each other, that may be why those devices aren't happy with each other. Sure, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right, moving on with our tips here. We'll see if we we'll see if we get through these tips. We might just jump around, but that's all good. Uh Peter has 
uh, an interesting thing. He says, I recently swapped my iPhone six for a new one with a non-bulging battery. That's good. He says, I restored from an encrypted local backup via iTunes and was very surprised that the predictive text preferences were not restored. Not really a geek challenge, just interesting. And that is interesting. Perhaps there's a reason though, that that is left to being device specific. Um, I mean, think about this, right? The predictive text stuff, a lot of it has to do with, I, mean, I guess there's two parts. One is words you type regularly. And then the other is typos you make regularly. And certainly as someone who has just, you know, started experimenting going from an iPhone six plus to an iPhone SE, I can tell you, I make different typos, you know, because it's the, 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 the buttons, the keys are in a different spot. The keyboard layout is actually different. So I wonder if that's why that's not stored in iTunes backups. And it's just like, no, you know, and, or maybe it's stored there, but only for the phone with exactly the same serial number, right? Where it'll push it back if it's exactly the same phone. But if anything has changed, nope, you got to come up with a new one. I don't know. Or maybe there's a privacy reason too. Anyway, it's worth pointing out that that stuff ain't going to come back. You're going to have to rebuild that, which is sort of a, you know, manual uh, process or yeah. Yeah. your, your, your screw ups are kind of a personal thing. Yes. Yeah. We blame them on the device. That's what Apple's telling us here is that the screw ups aren't our fault. They, um, you know, they're, they're the device's fault. All right. So we've, uh, occasionally on this show, I, I don't know if you guys know, but occasionally we get a little bit geeky about routers. And at one point in time, we talked about, uh, a, a managed switch that has uh, QoS on it, quality of service. And John, you kind of walked us through uh, sort of a proof of concept that you did for your network having, having that happen. And Mike uh, actually shares a real-world advantage of doing this. He said, I recently ran into a QoS issue with one of our users on their home network with remote phone connecting to Jive Communications. Jive suggested all sorts of expensive routers and $300 switches. He says, I had recently listened to Matt Geekab where you were talking about switches and routers with QoS. Before we spent 500 bucks on some equipment suggested by Jive, we decided to try an $80 managed switch that supported QoS in the existing environment. This little eight-port eight netgear simply replaced uh, a dumb four-port switch the user had. We knew all the devices on his small home network, so setup was super easy. We just put it where the old dumb switch was, didn't even pre-configure, uh, because we knew we could find the new IP address uh, on the switch. The, the switch picked up from the, the router, because we'd see the new one. He says, I logged into the switch's web interface, which is great, he says, and noted QoS was enabled by default. Layered traffic, hence audio, video, etc., and had priority by default. He says, you could manage individual ports as well, if you like, but we didn't touch any settings. We just logged into the web interface and reviewed it and left the defaults like magic. It cleaned up all the voice issues the user was having for roughly 80 bucks. It resolved a really annoying issue that resulted in poor quality quality and was user replaceable within five minutes. I could not have asked for an easier solution. The switch appears to be loved by network admins as well. It's a great little device that you may want to give a shout out to. And he says uh, it's the Netgear Pro Safe eight port managed gigabit smart switch, the GS 108 T 200 NAS. If, uh, if, uh, if you're interested. So yeah, this, it, this is, and this is part of why we're talking a lot about QoS is with all these devices on our network, our networks have enough bandwidth to support 
pretty much everything we want to do. The problem is without shaping that traffic a little bit uh, again. I mean, this is the case in point here. He just, I mean, he, he looked in at, at the settings because he's a geek, but he didn't have to change anything. He literally plugged it in and it magically solved the problems. This is why I, I really feel strongly that QoS should be not only an option on all routers, Apple, I'm looking at you, but it should be enabled by default, at least in a very sort of soft way. I mean, if you want to, to you know, really tweak something, well, great, go and do that. But otherwise, it should just be there to sort of responsibly shape traffic and not let any one thing kill any one other thing. So, uh, so great story. Thank you, Mike. And, and really handy uh, kind of explaining, like I said, a real world scenario. So good stuff. Good, good stuff. All right. Moving on to Ben. Do you know? Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I just noticed this. I haven't tried this yet. Um, so I did on my TP link. Yep. Uh, wireless, you know, as I mentioned in the past episode, I, you know, did the QoS on that. But I noticed they have a setting here in the advanced that there's a QoS database file that you can apparently import, which uh, yeah, I haven't done that yet. But, uh, but I guess this Netgear has a similar, probably has something similar in that it says, okay, you know, these are the rules that I think most people are going to need if they want, you know, to view their video or get their audio and, and things like that. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. So I haven't gotten to that level with this. I I hard coded it because I knew what the values should be. I haven't gone to the next level because I don't think I I need to. Right. You need to. And a lot of people do, especially when you got tons of devices and lots of people. And I think, I I honestly think you're doing yourself and everyone a disservice by implying that you don't need to. I, I, you have not yet experienced the negative of, of this, but I, I feel like correct you, you still should be doing this simply to be proactive about it because the day will come when you've got, you know, your crash plan back. And I don't know if you reach crash plan or not, but just for the sake of argument, you've got your, you know, your offsite backup decides I got to reupload everything for four weeks. Right. Y- you know, and now your network's not quite right. And yet it doesn't have to be not quite right. It, you know, mm-hmm. a, a QOS on the switch just deals with that. And then you, or on the router, uh, if, if possible, just deals with it. And then you don't have to think about it anymore. So yeah, it, it really, uh, at this point, routers are fat. I mean, the, the, the big problem in the past was that routers didn't have fast enough CPUs to responsibly do QoS. It would actually slow your network down in order to speed it up. <laughs> uh, but now that's, that's just not the case. So, yeah. 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 So anyway, and yes, I know Brian Monroe in the, cra- in the, in the chat room at macgeekgubcom slash stream points out correctly that if you're using crash plan, it should be able to adopt the old backup. And all of that is true. It, I'm just kind of pointing out, you know, there, there will be some scenario where something needs to do lots at a time when you want to do other lots and, and QoS can deal with that. So. Thank you, Mike. Good stuff. All right. Ben is where we're going here. Uh, because in the last show we were talking about battery health with USB-C and Ben says, let's assume you don't use your laptop away from your desk a couple hours a day, but instead a couple hours a week. This means that you are plugged in too long for good battery health. Correct. Assuming this is not going to be a server of any kind, because please no portable servers. Uh, then the menu bar app caffeine in the Mac app store can help. 
It will adjust your sleep settings and keep your Mac awake when you ask it to. One can unplug their Mac when they leave the office for the night and turn on caffeine to keep their Mac awake for a few hours. This will give your battery the exercise it needs. When caffeine restores your Mac's sleep functionality, uh, you should still have enough charge left to start your day. And that is true. Um, caffeine is a great little app. It is really just a wrapper for a terminal command called caffeinate, excuse me, caffeinate, which is built into OS 10. So uh, caffeine should just always work even with OS up- upgrades and all of that, uh, unless Apple changes something dramatically, which of course they might, but, uh, but yeah, caffeine is great. Fruit juice also does this and it will, it will allow you the problem. The problem with USB-C is if your power comes from the same place that your hard drive connection comes from. You've got to be very careful. You can't just unplug the cable when you go to leave. You have to go eject your drives and all of that, um, and then and then unplug it. But uh, but yes, it it you know. And again, that's where apps like like that's why I really like fruit juice because it will remind you of this stuff. Like hey hey whoa you gotta you know you, you gotta unplug otherwise you're gonna kill your battery. So yeah, it's not an easy not an easy solution, but. Uh, We'll get us there. We do have a, um, well, I, I'll call it a rant and a, a question, I guess, about about batteries and all of that. But first, John, I want to uh, I want to talk about our our second batch of sponsors. Does that work for you? Absolutely. All right. Our sponsor, FreshBooks, makes life so much easier for you as a small business owner, and that includes what I like to call solopreneurs. That's actually a term I stole from FreshBooks. But I love the term because that's where so many of us start out. And frankly, many of us stay right there and that's okay. It's kind of nice to be on your own. You get to make all the decisions. You don't have to deal with any of that. But what you do have to deal with is managing your books. And if you're a solopreneur, guess what? That means you're managing your books on your own. FreshBooks makes that super easy. We talked last week a lot about invoicing. This week, I want to talk about expenses. FreshBooks lets you forget about forgetting to keep track of your receipts and expense reports. They have a FreshBook app, right? You take pictures of your receipts on your iPhone, and then FreshBooks pretty much handles the rest. Uh, it all starts with invoicing, like we said, but you've got to track your expenses too, because when it comes time for taxes, heck forget about taxes. Well, don't forget about taxes. That's actually really bad advice. Uh, Before you think about taxes, think about expenses that relate to your clients that you need to bill them for. Right? So if you go out and, you know, let's say you're a consultant and you're going to install a new router for somebody and you go buy that router you want to make sure you track the expense for that router. And also you bill them for that router. So, you do that, totally takes care of it for you. FreshBooks also handles, right inside the app, time tracking. So you can put all of this stuff together. It's super easy. you got to check this out. FreshBooks.com slash MGG is where you go to get 30 days for free. So that's FreshBooks.com slash MGG. Then you enter MacGeekab in the how did you hear about us section. And that's how they know. We're the ones that told you. So check it out. Our thanks to FreshBooks for sponsoring this episode. BB Edit from Barebones Software at barebones.com. Our next sponsor is an app I truly couldn't live without. In fact, uh, we use it to do this podcast. 
We use it to manage all the files. I had earlier this week, I had to open up a file uh, to edit and I had to save this file using a very specific character format. It was like UTF 16 with little Indian and byte order marking or something. It's like, oh, okay. You know, and Windows uh, CRLF as opposed to Unix. It was crazy. BBA just did it. No problem. Just works. No, no issue whatsoever. And it worked. But BB Edit has features for, you know, that maybe you're a little more mainstream, like you can use a shared backup folder on iCloud Drive because you may not know it, but BB Edit can save backups of every file you work on. But it's really nice if those backups are shared amongst your Mac. So they're leveraging iCloud Drive to do that. There's a new folder comparison option in the find differences dialog box. One of my favorite features of BB edit is its ability to show you differences in text files and edit through them. Um, now there's a new folder comparison option called only compare items in common. And with this on BB edit only lists the results that exist in both of the folders being compared. So it's not going to tell you, Oh, this folder has a zillion things that that one doesn't now only compare the things that are the same and then, or the files that are similar and then show me the differences between those two. You got to check it out. Barebones.com. Our thanks to Barebones, makers of the great BB edit for sponsoring this episode. Hello, John and Dave. Actually, this one is for Dave. I was just listening to Mackie again, number 600. This is Scott, by the way, in case you haven't figured out. Uh, you were talking about battery technology. And you basically ask, well, why haven't they fixed battery technology? Why haven't they come up with something new? It's like, oh, genius could be done on a schedule. Genius could be done on a time clock. I mean, come on. You got a couple of things working, working against you here. And the biggest one is the law. Basically, the law of physics. Haven't you ever seen those shirts that say physics? It's the law. Well, get used to it. We're stretching the laws of physics. Sometimes you just can't go any further beyond what the laws allow. I mean, you you made it sound like somebody's holding, I know this may not have been your intent, but you made it sound like somebody was holding back on on innovation in batteries. Do you think, for example, Elon Musk would be holding back on batteries? Uh, especially if he could do better in one of his cars. Right now he's talking a couple hundred miles. Yeah, but if he could do things to where he could stretch his cars to a couple thousand miles on a charge, don't you think he'd do that? Don't you think he'd get it out as quickly as possible? When it comes, it comes. When it doesn't, you figure out how to live with it like everybody else. You know, just, uh, this may not have been your intent, but this is the way you made it sound. This is Scott down in the D.C. area. Have a good one and don't get caught. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. You know, that, that wasn't my intent, but but it, I mean, it almost was. It, it, I certainly didn't intend to imply that uh, somebody was holding back a, at all. It was more acknowledging that, look, there's all these people working very hard uh, for decades on on improving battery life and battery capacity, I guess is a better way to put it. And uh, and and we've made you know, incremental uh, advancements, some relatively significant incremental advancement, but I feel like there's a whole other plateau that, that we can get to. And I'm just, it was more that 
given all the uh, research and and uh, attention that we've been paying to this, it, I'm more surprised that we just haven't found that next innovation yet. Um, frustrated too, uh, for obvious reasons, but uh, but more surprised that we haven't gotten there. That's all. But uh, but you know that's how things get done. We demand the impossible, Scott. We must because then sometimes it happens, and that's when it gets fun. No, I think people are holding back. Yeah. Well, no. Okay. What I want to see eventually. No, I'm, I'm totally serious. Here. Right. I think yeah. I said this in the past. Uh, nuclear fusion. I want to see a nuclear fusion power cell. Yeah. I, I think theoretically it's possible. It's sure. kind of dangerous because. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You want to put it in your pocket next to your your. I'll say your midsection there. Maybe not. You know. I don't know. But uh, but in a car, maybe. You know. And I've seen also, I think I've seen mutterings that people are making some progress with magnesium-based batteries. Yeah. And it's funny because the metals that they involve here are typically metals that, well, I guess just by the nature of batteries, do terrible things when you light them on fire. Sure. You know, same with, uh, yeah, I mean, magnesium and and lithium both do fun things when when they start burning, like they don't stop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> but I guess that's also yeah. why, you know, chemically they're they're good for batteries too. Sure. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. But um and sometimes it's a happy accident, I think. Sure. Yeah, and of they're, course. They're like, yeah, well, let's mix these two things and see what happens. Yeah. Oh, wow, we made a nice battery. Hey, look. Yeah, well, that's how a lot of advancement has happened is by accident or, you know, trying to do one thing and realizing, hey, wait a minute, uh, the, the byproduct of this isn't anything like we expected, but we might want to call the power dudes because they they might want this little thing that we found here. So, yeah, it's good. All right. Um, I'm going to go to Dan because Dan has a, another kind of really interesting thing that, that I, that I love. He said, uh, I've been wondering about something that I don't think many people have a need for, but it might make for an interesting topic. Since listening to your show, I've been escalating up the geeky things to try ladder. And I've been finding interest in things that require more graphics processing power. So my question is, could you two discuss your thoughts on external Thunderbolt GPUs? He says, I have a first-gen MacBook Pro Retina, which has served me very well thus far. However, I'm running into issues where occasionally I need more graphics power, either working with 3D-related programs, uh, the Unreal Engine, and, and playing uh, PC games or any games, really. Uh, he says, I saw a demo of one of these external graphics cards, and it looked to be exactly what I needed. But that always seems to be the case until you buy it. So here are my concerns. Do these work? What kind of graphics cards would be compatible? Would a Windows 10 compatible graphics card work in boot camp, even if it doesn't work when using OS 10? And what does future compatibility and anything like that look like? Um, he said, I know most people would say, get a new computer. But the thing is, 90% of the time while using my laptop, I don't need all that extra power. Most of the things I would use it for are just side projects and hobbies. I'm not looking to become a developer for a living, but I am looking to dabble in what developers do because, you know, it's what drives us as geeks. Since this need for for this, since the need for this would not be contributing to a new source of income, I can't justify buying a whole new computer, but I'm looking for some temporary something in the middle. So I'm just curious as to your thoughts. Thanks. All right, Dan. Yeah. So this is interesting. Uh, and I'll be honest, I had not really 
uh, been aware of this concept until your email, but that's what I love about this show is learning new things, but bear with us. And in fact, if any of you listening have uh, experience with external Thunderbolt GPUs, uh, I'd love to to hear about it, but here's what, what I've learned. We're talking about something that the typical term is eGPU, external GPU. And from what I've read, Thunderbolt three is the only Thunderbolt flavor with official support for this. That said, there's some folks out there that have had great luck doing this with both Thunderbolt one and Thunderbolt two, but it's not official. So vendor support is going to be hit and miss. I'll, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to a Reddit article about, or a Reddit thread, I should say, um, kind of about people talking about this. Uh, but that Reddit post is about a year old. So bear that in mind. Um, there are some vendors, in, in fact, one Bison tech, B I Z O N that has what they call their Bison box two, which tells me it's their second, uh, you know, venture at this. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And it is an external chassis into which you plug a graphics card. The chassis all by itself is 549 US. So uh, that's, and that's with no GPU in it. It's just a Thunderbolt chassis with, you know, the graphics uh, slot, the card slot in it. Obviously, it's, you can buy it uh, from them with a GPU if you're willing to spend more, or you can bring your own if you have one already. And, uh, and they do say that that is compatible with Thunderbolt 1 and Thunderbolt 2. Um, a non-tech has a great article kind of about AMD and their discussion of external radions. Um, and, and, you know, not surprisingly, AMD is, is pushing down that, uh, that path. And, and actually, Kurt in the chat room says that uh, he thinks OWC sells one of those chassis. It didn't come up on my searches for, uh, for whatever that's worth. But uh, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it the concept of that. This is what I love about Thunderbolt, right? And and this is what really excited me uh, about Thunderbolt at first, and why I'm excited that it seems like Thunderbolt's not going away. Because even if Apple standardizes on the USB C connector, remember with USB the lettered um, uh, things are the connectors, the numbered things are the protocols. So a USB C connector can pass many things over it, USB 1, USB 2, USB 3, and Thunderbolt 3. So, we, you know, it, I don't think Apple's doing away with Thunderbolt. I think we're just changing to this new connector. And that's good news because Thunderbolt is different from USB in terms of how it interacts with the computer. USB is a, a much higher level protocol. Thunderbolt really is a main line to the motherboard, just like card slots were. So having this idea of a Thunderbolt connected external card slot makes sense. It's just like having a card slot in your tower, except you don't have a tower. You just have this little box and it happens to be external, but it's all sort of the same. So, uh, or same enough, I'll, I'll say and, and to, to, to compare fairly. So you could, it, you know, it, it, it is possible. Now, the, the real question about this is driver, vendor support, right? Um, I would imagine that if you had a Windows, you know, boot camp or whatever that supported one GPU that the Mac didn't, that it would work. Uh, I haven't tested that, but there, there's no reason that I can think of that it wouldn't. Uh, if I'm wrong, please let us know and we'll, we'll share. But it's an interesting concept, you know, and obviously if somebody's making Mac drivers for a GPU that you plug this way, then it's going to work. So... It's a pretty cool thing. John, do you know, is this, is this new to you as well? Or, or are you uh, some more aware of this or where's that go? Is it new? No, 
All right. Why do I say that? Because, you know, I actually, a number of years ago, actually looked at a, uh, so I think this is a similar product to what you're talking about is I actually did look at a USB to HDMI adapter. So I think the concept we're talking about is. Yeah, but USB one bus to, to HDMI to, is much different than Thunderbolt to H to Thunderbolt to oh, a, no, I know. the slot, right? Yeah. No, I know that. And actually the product, and I actually looked at a product a number of years ago and reviewed it. And the problem is, at this point, actually, they did as well as they could. It was USB 2 to HDMI. The thing is, it suffered because you bandwidth. Um, right. USB, and actually, I'm looking now, and if you search, you can find that they do have USB 3 to HDMI, and that's better. Because USB 3, as I mentioned before, the, the, the bandwidth is 5 gigabits, and you know the, the similar Thunderbolt has enough oomph or has the potential to have enough oomph where right. you can get decent performance. Yeah, the, the one product with this USB 2 to HDMI thing I looked at was one, it chomped the processor on the machine. And because two, it's USB, right. Yep. And two, the frames per second was just, you know, it was, it was the best you could get. And actually, I'm amazed the what these guys did with the current technology. But um, Yeah, so, you, so it, OWC does have... Um, they call it, it's their Helios. It's a PCIe Thunderbolt expansion chassis. Um, the thing is though, this does, uh, and, and this is probably because it's not Thunderbolt three yet. It doesn't officially have any graphics cards that GPU based devices. It's got like some video capture cards and things like that that are supported, but no graphics cards in that sense, but it, they may work is, is my point. They're they're not officially supported, so they're not on the list. But uh, but you know the they've got the the Helios and the Helios two, and the Helios itself is two ninety seven. So you know it's it's cheaper, and it looks like it's got two uh uh two double width card slot. And uh, I can't tell if it's got one slot or two. I'm trying to figure out while I'm talking. So I'll put it in the show notes. You guys can figure it out. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, interesting stuff. It's, it's, I, I love this stuff. Like I said, it, uh, you know, and I, and I like seeing people try things that aren't officially supported and actually find them uh, working. So fun stuff. Okay. Uh, Thomas's question, John, are we ready to move on to Thomas? Yes. Okay. Thomas uh, says, uh, I love your podcast. Thank you, Thomas. We love you too. We love all of you folks. We know, you know that. It's not just the caffeine talk. Well, except for that one. Well, yeah, but I mean, yeah. come on. Duh. Uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Thomas says, I'm working on adding some additional home security. First up is the addition of a doorbell camera. Skybell HD gets good reviews, and it's the one I'm strongly considering. Installation instructions state that Wi-Fi must be configured so that the 2.4 gigahertz channel has a separate SSID. He says, I have an Apple Airport Extreme, and currently have the same SSID for both my five gigahertz and 2.4 gigahertz channels. And, and he had some specific questions, but, and he shared us, shared with us the instructions from Skybell and they do, he's, he's not misinterpreting them. They're made, they make it very clear that they want you to do this. And I've seen other things suggest this, um, including the nest, which uh, I have one right here, actually, but uh, what, 15 feet from me. Um, but here's the thing. If these things only support 2.4 gigahertz, right? There is zero chance that they're going to grab the five gigahertz network and try and associate with it 
because there's zero chance that they will even see it because they're not looking at the five gigahertz radio. So why in the world would it matter what the name of the five gigahertz network is? It's not going to see it. I've never understood this. And the nest I've seen some people say, Oh, to make it work right, you've got to change your, your, you know, you've got to have a separate SSD for 2.4. And I don't because logically it made no sense to me why I would need that. And no one has explained to me, ah, I see why you say that, but here's what you're missing. So if I'm missing something, please tell me. Uh, but if I'm not, well, I don't know. You don't have to tell me, but uh, it would. I'm just curious about this. I don't know why all these Internet of Things devices suggest it. I, I can see that from a troubleshooting standpoint when you're on the phone, perhaps with, uh, you know, a novice user, someone that just doesn't understand this level of, of stuff, it makes life simpler. But... Uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't buy it. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Any thoughts on that, John? It makes me want to shake my fist. Same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is, I do know, you agree gonna, with me? I mean, it, or am I missing something? No, I agree with you. I, I, I don't know why they're imposing this rule. I mean, it could be power requirements of, you know, the various radios or uh, I. But it doesn't, I mean, you know, that's like saying you have to make sure your neighbor's SSID is specifically something else because otherwise it's like, no, it, who cares? It's not going to see it. I trust me. I have devices that are just 2.4 gigahertz. There's times I would like for them to see the five gigahertz signal, but it's not physically possible. Remember what Scott said in his comment? The, you have to obey the law, right? I think, I don't know. The laws of physics? Yeah. I want to break the laws of physics. Well, clearly the people at, at uh, Smart Skybell uh, think that they have. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Dave, I want to mention something. I'm going to, okay. th there's going to be a very quick cool stuff found. Great. It's, it's a, it's a piece of software that will help it. It's relevant. I, I, so I'm not I almost, going on a tangent. No, I almost went here because I think, I think I know where you're going and I almost went here about a half hour ago. So go. All right. Well, the piece of software I'm going to mention is something. And one of the coolest features of it is that it allowed me to see on my computer, what many refer to as roaming. And at least the terminology that this piece of software uses, uh, they call roaming when you go from one radio to another. Okay. Now, normally you won't know this. Um, so the piece of software, I'm just going to spit it out because our, our, so these are our pals at Dabuki. Okay. And they're great. And they make all this awesome software. And they just made something really awesome called Dabuki Tools. And I'm pretty sure it's free. I mean, how can you beat that? But what it does is that it showed me the other day, Dave. So a lot of times I will have my MacBook Pro on wireless and I'll be, you know, scooting around the house. And one thing that it showed me at one point, at first I was scratching my head. I'm like, what does this mean? And it said roaming and it gave me the MAC address of one device and then the MAC address of another. And at first I didn't know what it meant. And I'm like, wait a second, I'm not sure. That MAC address doesn't look familiar. And so I was looking at, on my router, the list of the MAC addresses of all the connected devices, most good Wi-Fi routers will show you that somewhere. Sure. Um, even Apple's, though, I think you've got to beat it out of it. it it's really hidden. Um, well, actually, no, I, I'll take that back. Uh, Apple software, last I checked, will show you the, the MAC address of connected devices. 
but it showed me two MAC addresses. And I'm like, wait a second, that's not a MAC address of, of any connected device. Am I getting hacked? What's going on here? And then finally I realized what's happening. It was the MAC address of the two radios in my TP link. Sure. One was the, one was the yeah. MAC address of the 2.4 and the other was the MAC address of the five. And at one point my Mac decided, well, you know, I'm going to switch just because. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. So Dubuki tools is, I mean, the price is right. And it shows you a lot of uh, information about what's happening with your Wi-Fi. Like I have it right now. It shows me in the menu bar, it'll show me the channel and the uh, channel width of whatever I'm connected to, which if you're into that sort of thing, that's, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Cool. All right, so hats sweet. off to them and yeah, I'll paste the, uh, the link here. Oh, that's already taken did. care of. Look at that. Yeah. Nice. yeah, We got you covered, man. It's all good. Uh, <laughs> Je- Jeff and, and Brian, thank you guys so much. They've been uh, helping out uh, crafting the show notes while we've been uh, doing the show as well. So it's, uh, it's all happening here at the zoo. All right. Uh, so that was, zoo? D- what's that? Well, I don't know. It's <laughs> sure. Why not? <laughs> All right, so that was a uh, an extra little cool stuff found. We got a little bit of time here. Um, we'll at, we'll answer Christopher's question because it's 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 valid and probably pretty quick. But who knows? It's Mac Geekab, folks. Uh, Christopher asks, I'm currently running an older four bay Firewire 800 Drobo with a ten with ten terabytes hodgepodge of Western Digital Green and Western Digital Black drives. The Drobo is doing both my Time Machine backups and some general file storage. I'm looking to make the jump to a network storage with the Drobo 5N, but I have a question. Are the hard drives marketed for NAS use, the WD Reds, necessary for a network storage device? Okay. So there's some religion here, but there's also just some facts. Um, They are not necessary. So to answer your question, no, you don't have to have them. I ran for years, and I think I've still got some what what we call green drives from a variety of vendors, including Western Digital. These are desktop-oriented drives. The green drives are power-conscious drives uh, that will you know spin down and and a little you know a little more frequently and spin up a little more slowly, and that in a NAS can be a problem depending on the NAS. And with your Drobo, you're definitely going to run into problems with this eventually. But the problem isn't catastrophic, typically. It is a problem. What will happen is um, if there is an error on the drive, and, and physical drives have errors, and they have ways of compensating for them. Usually, drives have extra spare blocks that are not accessible to you as the user, and when one block that the drive is accessible to you, or that, that is accessible to you, goes bad, the drive says, got it, let me remap this. And so it remaps to one of its spare blocks and everything is good. And that's okay. It, you know, I mean, yes, it's a sign of eventual impending failure, but you can go through many of these before it really becomes a problem. It's just part of how it works. But when the drive does that, it has to go offline briefly to remap this thing and then come back. And typically these green drives, when they do their remapping, do not come back online fast enough. And so the NAS throws an error with regards to that drive. And one of these errors is okay. A couple of them are okay. More than that though. And the, and the NAS will say, whoa, we have a problem with this drive. You should check it out. Now, depending on the NAS and the vendor, you might, it might just say, check it out and you check it out and you're like, oh, it's a green drive. No problem. But with Drobo, once it hits a limit, that Drobo blacklists that drive's serial number and will never allow it to be used in that Drobo again, ever. 
And there, to my knowledge, there's no way to go in and, and refresh or, you know, delete that, that list, that blacklist. So, you know, yeah, they are not made for NAS use for, you know, this, this hundred percent uptime kind of thing. And that's where you're going to do better with the, the Western digital reds and other NAS um, focused drives, NAS specific drives. So I have, because I dealt with a lot of this, I've just started, I just bit the bullet and I pay the extra 30% or whatever it is. And I buy the, the reds whenever I need drives and, and I've, it served me well. But if, if you have a green drive around and you want to put it in, absolutely put it in. If you're going to go buy drives, I, you know, it's hard because if you're going to buy like four drives at once, uh, you know, it, adding 30% to that gets expensive. It, you know, it's like adding another drive. So, but it, it in the end, it's the right thing. So, uh, you know, maybe you do what I did. Maybe you start with green drives and know that, you know, at about the two-year mark, you're going to, you know, wind up having to replace many of them, if not all of them, I don't know. And, but then you can use them elsewhere. That's the thing is you take them out of your NAS and they work fine as other things. If, if there's other things to do with them. So anyway, that's my thought on that, John. Do you have any thoughts on that? I have several green drives in both my Drobo and my Synology. Yep. And so far they're fine. Mm -hmm. No, it's true. Well, I had one fail. So in the Synology one time, it identified a uh, IO error yep. on one of the green drives, and I sent it to WD under warranty, and they sent me another one. Actually, Sweet. they sent me back a larger one. Oh, yeah. Which is kind of nice. Yeah, yeah. Because cool. I think it was a 2.5, and they didn't have any 2.5s, and they're like, well, here, have a three. And I'm like, yeah. okay. Hey, here's a, here's a tip. Whenever I get a hard drive, um, I go and put on my calendar... Uh, I, I figure out whenever, you know, I go register it and, and then I, you know, when I register, it tells you what your warranty expiration date is. Uh, and actually, if you don't know your warranty expiration date, uh, I, be, I believe both certainly Seagate and I think Western digital as well. If you go in and pl plug the serial number in online, it'll tell you what your warranty expiration date is, which is handy. Um, I go and put on my calendar for a month before the warranty expires that that drive is, is going to expire. And then, you know, when I see it come up on my calendar, I know, all right, time to do a, you know, major scan of the drive and not all drives, but many of them show enough errors where I, you know, call, call up WD or, or Seagate and say, Hey, I'm having an issue. And a lot of times they'll say, Oh yeah, no, that's beyond the tolerance level. So, uh, yep, we'll send you a new one. Then you get a new drive right before your warranty expires. So there's my little tip for you today. Oh, good one doesn't always work. I mean, sometimes the drive's working fine, which is, you know, also not a bad thing, but, uh, but, you know, going and checking it before your warranty expires is, is always a good thing to do. So. Oh yeah. No, that's what I did with the last W with the, the last green that failed. I actually said, um, it exceeded the smart parameter, you know, when they're like, what's the reason you're returning it? And I'm like, well, one of these parameters is greater yeah. than the threshold. And they're like, okay, here, yeah. have another one. No problem. Yeah. All right. One last thing before we go and, We'll see if we're capable of making this quick. Uh, we talk a lot about routers on the show, as I might have mentioned, for those of you that uh, that that weren't aware. Uh, but and and one of the things over the years that we've talked about is third party firmware and the ability to install it on some routers, not all. Uh, and I I'm a big fan of this third party firmware. Um, I actually just recorded a show with Chuck Joyner all about routers, and I sort of talk about why I became a fan of third party firmware. But the short version is. Because initially there were no routers and I had to build my own out of a Linux box 
and uh, and got used to being very flexible with with what I could do. But anyway, uh, the FCC pushed a new set of of rules uh, last year that basically makes the router manufacturers responsible if someone puts any firmware on that device that then allows that person to exceed the FCC's limits. Like in the U S we can only use channels one through 11. Um, we can only transmit up to a certain power level beyond that is, is illegal. And, and of course it's not up to the, I mean, it is up to the user, but manufacturer just builds it so that you can't access other channels or transmit beyond that limit and you're good to go. But the FCC says, Hey, if your router is capable of having any software installed on it that will let people go beyond those limits. That's also on you, you manufacturers. Some manufacturers have handled this very, very poorly and just said, fine, we're going to block all third-party firmware, TP-Link. Um, so we're not very happy with TP-Link right now. Linksys this week, I believe they are the first. Uh, Linksys this week announced they will continue to allow uh, third-party firmware on the routers. And Mike, I don't know, but... One way that a company like Linksys could do this is to work with the vendors of this third-party firmware, the developers, I should say, of this third-party firmware, and just say, hey, put these limits in for our routers so that people can't exceed the, you know, the FCC guidelines, which, frankly, most people don't want to do anyway. Uh, and then, you know, we're all good. So I don't know that that's what Linksys did, but it's that that's one way they could do it. And I know that these developers, I talk to these developers. They're very accessible. Uh, they're crazy people because they develop router firmware. So they're, you know, they're a little bit nuts, but they're really smart and they're very easy to get in touch with. Um, so, uh, and I know that, that, you know, it, that, that many people at the, at the sort of the hardware vendors speak with these guys. So, um, it, I just wanted to point out Linksys is, has done this. I would not be at all surprised to see both Netgear and Asus uh, follow suit and possibly even D-Link very, very shortly here. Uh, again, I don't have any inside knowledge. I just know how these companies feel about third-party firmware and they're quite open to it. So, so there you go. So TP-Link bad. Linksys good. No, I like TP-Link. TP-Link bad. Linksys good. It's how it, they, they, they've made their decision they, and hope they, they could reverse it though. It would be, and it would be smart for them to reverse it and they might, right? I mean, you know, that, and then, and then not TP link bad, then TP link good because TP link actually is one of the favored routers by people that install this third party firmware. And it was quite a shakeup when, when they came out and said, yeah. no, we're not going to allow this. Yeah. Cause it's good hardware. That's the problem. Yeah. Oh yeah. So far I'm happy with mine. And it even yeah. has in the configuration you know, if power is a concern, actually their built-in firmware actually has a little slider where I can set the, the power. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you just can't set it beyond the FCC maximum, and that's okay. But really, we're all better off, to, unless you really know what you're doing, you're better off setting the, the power at auto and letting the, the router and its firmware decide what the best, uh, you know, power level is. Uh, because it's going to sense what other radios are doing and, and sort of find its home in there. So, because too much power can actually make it for a bad, make for a bad connection. So, yeah, it could fry your brain. Well, yeah, that too. I mean, uh, I guess I don't, I don't. That's news to me, but I guess no, it could. I think st yeah. Studies have shown yeah. that that's probably not going to happen. Yeah. 
I wish I could even though it's 2.4 gigahertz, and that's what microwave ovens use. And if you stick your head in the microwave, you could fry your brain. Yeah, but a lot less power, though. A lot less power. I mean, your, your router isn't capable of of heating up a can of soup, you know, unless it like has a really hot CPU and you sit the can on top of your router and just wait a long yeah, time. What's mine? I think mine's a twelve hundred watt microwave. Yeah, that's what they you don't need that. Days. You don't need that much for uh, for a router for a Wi-Fi, dude. Probably not, <laughs> dude. I don't. I think it, it wouldn't. I, I think it would be too powerful, right? I mean, you'd have to focus it into like a microwave dish and send it very, very, very long distances. And then, it, and then actually, that'd probably be helpful. But uh, but for short range in your house, I think everything would just stop functioning. It would it would totally overblow. It'd be like distortion, right? You know, like if I crank up my mic gain and and I'm not going to do it because it's going to sound terrible to your ears. But that's the point, right? Uh, <sighs> I am going to be in Houston next uh, this coming Saturday. So Saturday, May 21st. I believe the meeting is at 9 a.m., but uh, you can check out the website, haaug.org. I'm going to be speaking there for the wonderful folks in Houston. And uh, and I, I hope I'm not wrong in saying this, but I don't think I am, that uh, all are welcome. But uh, check out the haaug.org uh, website for details on that. Very look, very much looking forward to it. And uh, by Skype, between now and then, on Tuesday night, uh, on the, which I believe is the 17th, I am speaking to a group in Atlanta. So it's a busy week for me. Very, very uh, good stuff. Feedback at MacGeekab.com is how you can get in touch with both John and I. That's, uh, that's how it works. I think you said feedback at MacGeekab.com. I did say feedback at MacGeekab.com, unless you're a premium listener. Premium at MacGeekab.com is the address that gets a little more priority than the feedback one. They both get read, but uh, you folks that support us directly get uh, get a little bit of extra, a little bit of extra love. And uh, in this today's show, we had uh, we heard from several premium listeners. Let's see if I can find you and thank you all. So thank you to Jed, thank you to Gray, thank you to Peter, thank you to Mark. And thank you to, uh, again, thank you to, to Jeff and Brian for uh, really helping out with the show notes. It's all good. And yes, I, it, Michael uh, at, the, uh, at the Houston group is in the chat room right here, and he confirmed all are welcome. So uh, it's an 11 a.m. meeting, so you get to sleep in. Good news. Uh, here I thought it was 9, so that's perfect. 11 a.m. main meeting. So there we go. We got it all straightened out. This is what I love about the chat room. They can correct us on the fly, even uh, with stuff like this. So awesome, awesome stuff. Find us on Facebook. Go to MacGeekGab.com slash Facebook. That's the best way to get there. You could also find the group if you're going in Facebook already, and that's totally fine. Uh, lots and lots of you there. So much great conversation happening and so many new people joining uh, all the time, and everybody's been great. We've really, it's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. You know, we've got almost a thousand people in there now, and, uh, and it's just, it, everybody's great. We haven't had any problems. Oh, it's, it's awesome. So check it out, MacGeekGab.com slash Facebook. You can get your questions answered. No question is considered stupid. Uh, everybody really is happy to help. Um, like I said, we've really got a great group. So thank you to everybody that participates in that and, and makes it such a warm and inviting place. It's awesome. Thanks to Cashfly, of course, at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com for providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. Thanks to our great sponsors, uh, MacPaw with Gemini2 at MacPaw.com slash MGG, Otherworld Computing at MacSales.com, 
FreshBooks at freshbooks.com slash MGG. Barebones Software at barebones.com. Smile at smilesoftware.com slash geek. Gazelle at gazelle.com. Squarespace at squarespace.com slash MGG. And everybody at Casper at casper.com slash MGG. Great stuff. Very fortunate to be able to do what we do. And thank you, you in particular, for making this possible. And a special shout out thanks to Jeff and you know why. John, do you have anything poignant to share? I think so, especially in light of the fact that you're probably going to fly and you're probably going to have to go through the TSA. But I hope you get TSA pre-checked because the thing is, Dave, we don't want you to get caught. Made up.